Well, today we are excited to invite a friend of mine, uh, Greg Harris, to bring a teaching today on something that I know is dear to his heart, but mm -hmm. I think is really important for us as the church and God's people in the world is human identity and disability. I know that's close to Greg's heart, and uh, I'm really excited for him to come and teach us about this from God's Word today. Greg's a pastor at Southridge Church in Langley. Uh, he's a good friend, and I'm just really thankful that you're here. And yeah, thank you. We also get mistaken for each other often. <laughs> so Same uh, school drop-offs. Yes, yeah. and so if that has any issue, I'm David, this is Greg. I'm, Greg. Uh, I'm gonna pray for you. Thanks, man. Jesus, we love you so much, and we're so grateful for who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you for the identity that we have in you and the rock-solid nature of that. And I just pray with thankfulness for my friend Greg and his heart to know you, to love you, and to follow you, and to teach others about what that looks like uh, in their own lives. I pray that the Holy Spirit would fill Greg and would empower him to speak the word of God that has been put on his heart, um, and that you'd be honored and glorified through him, and that you would teach us about this important topic of identity and disability. Be with him now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, man. I want you to think about uh, who has been one of the most influential teachers of your life. Uh, think about maybe in your elementary school days or in your high school days, maybe uh, when you attended college or uh, maybe not even in a formal school context. Maybe it was just someone in your life that has had a really important uh, role as a teacher. Um, I think when it comes to great teachers, one of the, the main pieces that make them so helpful isn't that they are the kind of people who give us every answer, uh, but they're the kinds of people who ask the right questions, or more particularly, who help us think about the world in such a way that we start asking the different kinds of questions than we've been asking before. I actually have a picture of myself with one of the most influential teachers in my life. Uh, his name is Benji, and he is my uh, oldest son. Uh, Benji is eight years old, and Benji has been the, the person in my life who has prompted me to ask questions that I never asked before he came on the scene. Uh, he, he prompted me to ask questions like, what does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to be a, a disciple of Jesus? And one of the things that Benji has brought into our life is this whole conversation of not just human identity, but human identity in particular regarding the conversation of uh, disability um, or what we commonly call disability. So actually, disability is, is more prevalent in Canada than I think people would, would understand or, or realize. Uh, one of the recent statistics from a 2017 Canadian survey on disability said that there is 22% of the Canadian population aged 15 years and over, or about 6.2 million individuals who have one or more disabilities. 22% is a lot of people. It's probably, I'm, I'm assuming that most of the people that are hearing me right now, either you yourself have some form of a recognized disability or a loved one in your family or in your tight friend circle has a disability or you are maybe one degree separated from someone that you know has some kind of uh, diagnosed or undiagnosed disability in their life. 
the church doesn't talk about this a whole lot. Uh, there's not a lot being written about disabilities in the Christian perspective, but we all are involved in this conversation in one way or another. And so I'm gonna be walking us through uh, this idea of, of how do we understand human identity and how do we understand disability from a, a Christian perspective. So before I, I keep going, I wanna make one kind of caveat. Um, I'm gonna be using terms uh, that are kind of the most uh, up-to-date in terms of how we speak about the area of disability. And so uh, you should just know my, my intention is uh, to be talking about this conversation with, uh, with honor and dignity and, uh, and, and not in any way try to be offensive. Um, but depending on where you are on this conversation, uh, the way that some of the things might be phrased it might be helpful or unhelpful, but just uh, I hope you trust the heart behind it. Uh, and also, it's a big conversation. Uh, human identity and disability is, is more than just one video message. Uh, it, it's a, a much bigger conversation. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's something that I say that prompts a question or an idea or a concern or confusion or something that you feel like, man, I, I need more. <laughs> I need to have this conversation more. Um, and that'll be something that I'm, I'm sure your pastoral team here at, at Central Heights is willing to to help you through that process. So just know I, I won't be able to answer everything that comes into your mind with this. So we're gonna spend our time in two main ways. First, we're gonna talk about what is disability. And then secondly, we're gonna look at what is humanity and particularly from a Christian perspective. So first, what is disability? Um, every culture in history has some kind of ideal person, some kind of ideal body-mind is the way that it's talked about uh, among kind of disability theologians and disability theorists. This idea of uh, a picture of the ideal. Um, it, and I know that this is true uh, because in my own everyday life, when I'm on uh, Instagram, I get inundated with ads about how my own physique could look more like the ideal person. Uh, they're like, you should try calisthenics. It's gonna make you ripped in like 12 days or less. Uh, th there's this picture of what a ideal person is and anything that differs from that uh, we start looking as as different, or right if if a, a person is too short, or if they are too wide, or if their facial features look different than what we're used to, than the kind of ideal picture in our minds that we have a tendency to start looking at those people as though they're in one way or another uh, disabled, uh, or or less than. Um, in the first century context, when the New Testament was written, th there was the ideal person in the Roman world. Uh, the ideal person in the Roman world was a, a man who was a Greek and who was free. And so anyone in the first century context who wasn't a man and who wasn't a Greek man and who wasn't a free Greek man was some degree of a lesser person than the ideal situation. And I don't think we um, say this out loud very often, but there is in a lot of us this sense that when someone is too far removed from what we see as the ideal, we start othering that person. We start thinking about them in, in dehumanizing ways. So in, in our context, anyone who kind of will diverge from the norm of health or appearance or capacities or abilities is typically considered uh, disabled in one way or another. 
Here's how the Canadian Federal Disability Reference Guide talks about disabilities. I'm sure this is a book that you've all picked up and read cover to cover, right? Uh, here's how they uh, define disabilities. Disabilities is an umbrella term covering impairments, activity limitations, and participation restrictions. An impairment is a problem in body function or structure. An activity limitation is a difficulty encountered by an individual in executing a task or action. While a participation restriction is a problem experienced by an individual in involvement in life situations. So that's the kind of um, contemporary definition that is being used widely. The Canadian Disability Reference Guide uses it. It's also part of the World Health Organization definition. That, that kind of umbrella term is what we uh, call disabilities. And one, one other kind of caveat before we get into some disability theory and understanding it, um, especially from a Christian perspective, one of the common Christian thoughts is that every disability or everything that we perceive as disability is a result of the fall, is a result of the first sin from Adam and Eve. And I wanna be clear that I believe that sin impacts us and our world in more ways than we know, but I also want us to be careful because the Bible talks about something, uh, a sin as something that is external to what it means to be truly human. Um, sin has impacted humanity in all kinds of ways, and we are born sinners, and we are not just people who sin, but we are sinners who sin. But sin is still something that is external to what it means to be human. Um, I, I know this because the way that we talk about uh, how Christ has dealt with sin is that Christ actually has dealt with the penalty of sin. Uh, Christ has dealt with the power of sin, and Christ will one day deal with the presence of sin, and yet people will still be fully people when sin has been fully and finally dealt with. So sin isn't intrinsic to what it means to be human. Sin is something external to what it means to be human. Uh, there's an author by the name of Amy Kenny, and she wrote a book called My Body is Not a Prayer Request. And in the book, she talks about how it's possible for someone who is disabled to be a new creation, for someone who is disabled to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in them, for someone who is a has disabilities to actually um, have the mind of Christ. And so all of those new creation realities that we say are true of all people when they come to faith, that they are a new creation, they, the Holy Spirit dwells them in them, they have the mind of Jesus, all of those truths are equally true for those who have disabilities as they are for those who we might say are non-disabled or typical or normal. So the reason why I'm saying this caveat is because there's more ambiguity and, and nuance to this idea of what we see as disability than we might have actually considered. So I want you to think about it this way. Uh, there's a famous painting by a guy named Caravaggio and it's the incredulity of St. Thomas. Uh, and it shows the scene that gets talked about in the Gospel of John where uh, the resurrected Jesus shows up to the disciples, but Thomas was not in the room 
And so the other disciples, they, they saw Jesus, they touched Jesus, they, they talked with him, they ate with him. And the other disciples tell Thomas, Jesus is alive. We, we saw him, we touched him, we were with him. And Thomas says, look, unless I actually see the scars and I, I touch him, I'm not actually going to believe that Jesus is alive today. And so a few days later, Jesus appears to the disciples again, and this time Thomas is in the room. And Jesus tells Thomas, look, look at my scars. And, and put your hand in my side where I was pierced. And so Caravaggio's painting shows that scene of Thomas touching the pierced body of Jesus. Now, it's interesting to me about this scene. In addition to the apologetic or defense of the Christian faith angle that Jesus Christ is historically verifiably resurrected from the grave, which is the bedrock of Christianity, What's intriguing to me from a perspective looking at disability or any body that differs from the norm or what we would see as the ideal person is that the resurrected Jesus, his body still has blemishes. His body still has scars. Which I think is interesting in this conversation because if the way we think about the quote-unquote normal, typical person is that they are free from any blemishes or scars or any kind of um, less than ideal state of body, then the resurrected Jesus doesn't actually fit that picture. Jesus himself is the, the picture of what our future resurrected hope is, and the resurrected Jesus still has visible marks. That thought should be like a little pebble in our shoe as we think about this conversation about the ideal body and the disabled in our midst. So let me uh, get us into a little bit of some theory about disability. Uh, there's a few types of disability. The first type is congenital disability, and congenital disability is something that someone is born with. It's innate to them. It's, it's hardwired into how they were made or how they were born. So genetic divergences is what would fit into here. So uh, if you've heard of Down syndrome, or maybe you've heard of Turner syndrome, or my own son's syndrome, which is called 1P36 deletion syndrome. It doesn't have a cool name yet. Um, these different genetic abnormalities or genetic um, makeups is inherent to how people with congenital disabilities and the genetic uh, uh, divergences were actually uh, born. It can also be people who have neurodivergencies fit under this category too. So sometimes uh, neurodivergencies will be diagnosed as ADHD or ADD or OCD or the autism spectrum. Uh, and so what's interesting is that uh, there is a growing trend among people who are self-advocates in the disability community who actually uh, use identity-first language instead of person-first language. So some of us might say uh, that's a person with autism or that's a person uh, with Down syndrome. And what's intriguing is that more and more, you'll, you might hear people who actually uh, live with these uh, diagnoses use identity-first language. So people are starting to use language of, I'm an autistic person, or I'm a Down syndrome person. And so they're not trying to hide their diagnosis. They actually see it as intrinsic to who they are, innate to who they are. Uh, those are congenital disabilities. 
there's also another type of disability called an acquired disability, and these are conditions that develop later in life uh, through an injury or through a traumatic brain injury, or uh, if you know someone who has or had dementia, um, that kind of fits in the category of an acquired disability, something that they, someone didn't have at one point in their life, but then through different life circumstances, this, this disability emerged in their life. So one of the things that makes the disability conversation really practical for us is that not only will we know someone likely who has a diagnosed disability, but disability is one of the only identity pieces in this conversation of what it means to be human that the majority of us will actually acquire at some point in our life, either for a season or for the rest of our lives. And so every single one of us is going to experience the idea or the, the restrictions of disability in, in some capacity. So that leads me to a careful consideration that I, I want us to make. Um, I want us to think about the idea that even though all diseases can have a disabling effect on us, not every disability is actually caused by a disease. So the idea that disabilities are inherently wrong or inherently not what humans were made for is something that I, I think we could question or wrestle with a little bit. Um, so I was on a, a panel discussion one time where the conversation of disability was brought up and uh, someone asked me the question, um, are, aren't you excited for the day when your son will no longer uh, have his diagnosis, his genetic condition? And uh, my wife was on the panel with me and my wife has the ability to know things intuitively months and years before I ever come to understand it intellectually. And uh, my wife in the moment just felt like, no, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, she didn't say that in the Q&A time, but she, when our drive home, she was like, I don't know how I feel about that because it's hard to distinguish Benji's personality, his, his interests, his person from how he's been wired. And so we love Benji and people who know him love Benji. And sometimes this language of, of cure can be problematic for people in the disability community because what we are thinking is, isn't it tragic that that person has to live like that? And there are some downsides to different parts of disabilities. And yet I do think we need to be careful about this idea of, of seeing someone experience the wholeness of what it means to be human and differentiating that from curing someone's what we would call disability so that they could be more like us. Because that's what, when we talk about how do we now talk about disability, how do we address disability, there's a few models that we need to be thinking through. The, the first model is the medical model. And the medical model just focuses on how do we fix the person with the disability so that they no longer function the way they do, but can function like the rest of humanity or the ideal version of humanity. Uh, the next model is the, the social model, which focuses on, on fixing the society that restricts the person with the disability. Uh, in, in this imagery or this, this model, um, this might be helpful. I had a conversation with a friend of mine a few weeks ago, and um, they, they live with a, a disability. And when we were talking and they were sharing some of what is challenging for them, what I was intrigued by was how, how little 
they complained about their disability and how much they were burdened by how difficult it is for them to function in the world. So it was an interesting piece that the, the problem they saw was not their own body. The problem they saw was that they can't function well in our society with their body. It could be fixed by things like easier transportation and more readily available ramps and uh, all kinds of different things that we could do. So the societal model or the social model of fixing um, is focused on fixing a society that restricts uh, the person with the disability. So this model says, instead of us trying to always just fix the person so they can become like us, how can we adapt spaces and places and uh, means of living in the world to be more accessible to people who might not function the same way that we do? Which is connected to a third model of disability called the coalitional model. And this model focuses on collaboration among uh, people with all disabilities and abilities to, to address societal issues. So on this model, what it's doing is saying not just that people with disabilities are people who need our charity and who need our sympathy, but people who have disabilities are actually uh, equal participants in what it looks like to build a more just and accessible society for all people so that all of us can flourish better, not just some of us. And it actually sees persons with disabilities as persons who can contribute in one way or another to how it would look for our society to flourish for all people. In the book, uh, The Bible, Disability in the Church, Amos Young says this, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with the lives of people with disabilities. It's not they who need to be cured, but we, the non-disabled, who need to be saved from our discriminatory attitudes and practices, and people with disabilities should be accepted and honored just as they are. So I have a question for us to consider. How are we doing as the local church when it comes to engaging and incorporating the 20-something percent of the Canadian population who live with disabilities? Are we as Christians known to be the kind of people who see these persons, regardless of what their diagnosis may be, regardless of if they appear normal or typical, if you're just listening to the audio, I was using air quotes, uh, how do we ensure that all people, all persons, can actually be an active part of the kingdom of God and what he is doing in our local churches. I don't know what the situation here is at Central Heights in this regard. Um, I, I know that there are some churches who take uh, great efforts to engage in this conversation, and there are some churches who it's not even close to being on their radar, and there's all kinds of churches who are somewhere in the middle. But I do think it's something that all Christians and all local churches need to ask ourselves the question, if we really wanna be a place where each and every person can find belonging, how will that be possible if we don't think about ways that we can include the perspectives of those in our midst who we might call disabled? Uh, when people talk about my son, there's two ways that they typically talk about him. The, fir the first way is they see my son with his disabilities and they'll say, oh man, he's such an angel. You know, he's just this innocent, perfect, flawless person. And to them I say, 
you're wrong. He's a sinner. <laughs> He's a sinner like the rest of us. He's not some angelic creature who is, you know, above and beyond sin. But I also have people who come up to me and they'll say things like, we're just so sad that that happened to you. We're so sad that that happened to him. Because Benji is our oldest son, uh, we had all kinds of people who were very surprised that we would have more kids because they told us, what about the risk of having another child just like Benji? So there's the one response that people think of Benji as this angel. And the other one, even though they don't say the words out loud, where they think to themselves, he's just a tragedy. He's something subhuman. And yet, regardless of who you are, uh, if you are a human being, I, I believe you can pray along with David in Psalm 139, where he says, for you, God, created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Every single person is fully human whether they live with disabilities or not, or not yet. Every person is a human. So what does it mean to be human? So what, what is humanity? This is where Benji the teacher has prompted me to ask some of the most basic and big questions. What does it actually mean to be human, right? And, and right off the bat, what we should recognize is that what it means to be human is to be limited. Right? We, we believe that there is a God who is the creator of all things, and he is unlimited, and he has created persons, he has created humanity, and what it means to be human is to be not God. So regardless of what you can do or can't do, part of what it means to be human is that we are actually limited in our abilities, every single one of us. So we sometimes start by having this conversation about what does it mean to be human by talking about sin, that we are sinners who need a savior. And I believe that every single person is a sinner who needs Jesus to be their savior. But also, before we have the conversation about what it means to be human and start that with saying we're sinners, we have to actually go back further and say before we were sinners, humans were made as the image of God. Here's Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So there is this, um, this phrase that gets used in Christian theology called Imago Dei. It's a Latin phrase for the image of God. And you know Christians are serious about something when they start throwing out Latin terms, right? I don't make the rules, but once Latin comes out, that's when things are, are really important. So the Imago Dei, the image of God, is what humans actually are. So before we were sinners, we were image of God. 
This is the way one theologian, Millard Erickson, says it. The image refers to something a human is rather than something a human has or does. By virtue of being human, one is in the image of God. Being so is not dependent upon the presence of anything else. This is really important for us to grasp because if we don't believe that every single person is made in the image of God, if we don't believe that humanity is unique as being made in the image of God, we will run the risk of becoming like all of the other groups throughout church history who have dehumanized people. The only reason sexism can perpetuate is if you dehumanize the other sex. The only way racism can actually exist is if you dehumanize and think of people of other ethnicities as less than fully image bearers. The, the only way that ableism can exist in a society is that we dehumanize those who have disabilities and we think to ourselves, we don't say it out loud, but we think to ourselves, they're not exactly like me and therefore they're less than me. All the worst things that have happened in the history of the world have happened because we've dehumanized people. And yet, every single person, every single human being is made as the image of God. This is the way Dr. Carmen Imes says it in her book, Being God's Image. Being God's image is not the same as being God just as an idol is not itself a God, but merely represents one. To talk about being God's image rather than being made in God's image reinforces the concept that the Imago Dei is essential to human identity rather than a capacity that can be lost. What she's talking about here is that sometimes people have talked about the idea of, of the image of God being shared characteristics or capacities, right? It's the relational ability, it's the communication ability, it's the intellectual abilities. And any time that the conversation about the Imago Dei is, is confined to what people can do, we run the risk of saying, actually, before humans do things, humans are persons. And what it means to be made in the image of God is that we are unique in the created order. Every single human being is more valuable than every other part of God's creation. Even the angels are less than humans. The angels serve humanity. The angels, God didn't make a way for the angels to be saved. He made a way for his image bearers to be saved. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creative work. He made everything else and said it was good. He made humans and he said it was very good. It's not about our capacities or our abilities. It's about our identity as image bearers. The Imago Dei, the image of God, is our shared identity more than it is our defined capacities. So there's one way that I think we need to apply this in a really practical way, and it comes to us from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is far more interested in the attitudes of people than the actions of people. We know in a famous passage, if you've been familiar with Christianity, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. To, to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus, which is the goal of humanity, to be conformed to what he is like, means that we have to change at the heart level. It means that it's not just our outward actions of adultery that matters. It's what do you think about when you see other people? Do they become objects 
for your desire or are they persons to be loved and cherished? Jesus said, look, you've heard it said, don't have adultery, don't, don't, don't commit adultery, and that's true. But I say to you, the bigger issue is whether you're objectifying people in your lusting after them. Are you dehumanizing them in the way you think about them? So Jesus actually talks about another way we can dehumanize people. Earlier in Matthew 5, he says this, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the hell of fire. This language of Raka and you fool are, are derogatory terms in the first century. They are dehumanizing and objectifying language and, and terminology. And look, I, I know that language shifts and, and morphs over time, but one of the things we need to be really careful about as Christians is the way in which we use words to put down others. So uh, people will still sometimes use the R word to talk about something that they don't agree with or something that they think is not good. Uh, people will use the language of idiot. Uh, my wife and I have even had to catch ourselves uh, using the word lame, right? As though this situation isn't good, which means it's lame. Whereas that phrase is actually really offensive to people who have physical disabilities that prohibit them from acting in the world the way the rest of us do. So we, if we take the commands of Jesus seriously, what it means is that we have to not just, you know, avoid killing people. We have to ask ourselves the question, in the way I use my language, do I objectify and dehumanize the experience of others? And some of us might think, oh, what is this? The word police, it's the political correctness police. What, what, do, you, what do you say, I can't say these things? We have to ask ourselves the question, as Christians, if we take the way of Jesus seriously, are we willing to be changed at a heart level to say, I want to look so much like Jesus that the way I speak, the terms I use will be humanizing of people rather than dehumanizing of them. I think if we are willing to see the individual persons for who they are, and who God has made them, that will change everything about how we use our everyday language. And our language matters. Because even though the phrase goes that sticks and stones will hurt my bones, but words can never fail me or hurt me, we, we know that's not true. We know that the way we speak can be deeply hurtful to others. And as Christians, we should be the ones who bring life with our words, not tear others down. So here's where we land this conversation. The idea of human identity and disability is that every single person is made by God, is made in his image, and is loved deeply by God. Regardless of your abilities or whether you feel like you fit in or you don't, you need to know that Jesus loves you that Jesus thought your life was so valuable that he was willing to be crucified for you, to deal with your sin 
and to bring you into a resurrected life to live in a body just like his. God is pursuing you because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God's works are wonderful. And we know that full well. So let me pray for us. Father, I ask that as we keep this conversation going about what does it mean to be human and, and what does that mean for those in our lives, in our churches, in our community who uh, live in the umbrella term of disability. Father, I pray that your spirit would give us much grace, that we would be committed to your truth, and I pray that you would help us be the kind of people who exude Jesus in our everyday life. Father, I pray over Central Heights Church that they would be the kind of place where they live out the 168 hours of their week focused on Jesus, which means they'll be the kind of people who see image bearers for who they are as persons made by you deserving to be loved. Bless this church. Bless the ministry of her. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.